Oh, there the music kicks in. All right. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake Box. I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church, and so uh, glad that you're here uh, joining us this morning as we uh, are now two weeks away from finishing a 13-week long series we've been in over the course of the summer called The Big Picture, where we've been tracing the storyline of the Bible from cover to cover and uh, just helping us grow in our understanding of what God's Word says and really even how it all fits together, which is pretty amazing that it actually does all fit together because the Bible is made up of 66 different books written by 40 different authors over the span of 1,500 years, and yet it tells one unified voice, with one unified voice the same story about who God is and what he has done for mankind. And the only way it does that is because the Bible, as it claims, is inspired by uh, the Holy Spirit, by God himself. It's his word breathed out to us in his revelation of who he is. And, and the Bible's amazing. So we've been studying and having fun in this series. And uh, today... We're going to cover a lot of ground, a whole lot of the New Testament. But before we get in there, let me give us a little bit of a recap. Because what we've seen so far in this series is that the story of the Bible, you can really sum it up as saying it's a, it's a love story that begins with a divorce and, as we'll see next week, ends with a wedding. It's a love story that begins with a divorce and ends with a wedding. I'll get to talk more about that next week when we study the book of Revelation and eternity. So come back for that. That's always a hot topic. People want to, you know, high attendance Sunday, Revelation. But uh, we'll, uh, what, we'll, uh, what, what we've covered so far in this series is this, that, that uh, God created mankind to enjoy a perfect relationship with him and in a perfect world. And yet mankind rejected God. They turn their back on God and seeking our own independence and to be in control and distrusting the heart of God. We went our own way, and what that led to is brokenness. It broke our relationship with God. It led to broken relationships with one another. It led to a broken relationship with the world. And again, as Jason prayed, you look around this world right now, and you see the evidence of that all around us. But that happened because we spurned God. We rejected God. And yet, amazingly, God... And his great love and grace and mercy did not abandon us. But he continued to pursue us. And acting on the plan that he already had in place, he came after mankind to woo us back, to win us back to himself. And it's in his pursuit of us that we see the full display of God's glory, of his character revealed to us. And so if you go with this series, we started back in Genesis. And if you remember, back in Genesis 12, you see uh, God make this promise to a guy named Abraham. And he promises Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation come from you. I'm going to make you a, a, a great name. And I'm going to give you a great land. I'm going to be your God. And from you, I'm going, or through you, I'm going to bless all the families in the earth. And then the rest of the Old Testament is kind of this tracing of God keeping that promise to Abraham, and so a great nation does come from Abraham, the nation of Israel, and God adopts the nation of Israel as his people, and he says that through you I'm going to display my glory so that the, the, the nations are drawn to you, they're drawn to me, and how they see y'all relate to me. And yet, unfortunately, the nation of Israel, even though God redeems them out of Egypt, and God gives them the law, and God gives them the land, they reject God. 
Instead of where the nations would see Israel and want to be like them and have a relationship with the one true God, the nation of Israel looked at the other nations and said, no, we want to be like them. We don't want God as our king. We want earthly kings. We want human kings. And so they sought after having human kings and that those human kings didn't do for them what they hoped they would do. They didn't lead to more blessing and prosperity. It actually led them astray to where the nation of Israel ended up being divided and that the northern kingdom for, lasted for about 200 years and then went into Assyrian captivity were never heard from again and where the southern kingdom, Judah, went into, uh, after 400 years, Babylonian captivity where God judged the nation of Israel for not following him and not keeping his law. It's devastation. And that all, of the, all the while, the nation of Israel had the kings and they were doing their own thing. God continued his constant, steadfast pursuit of his people. And he would send them messengers, these prophets. And the prophets would come with the message that says, the God that loves you wants you to know that you need to repent because if you don't, then there's going to be judgment. So turn back to him. He'll receive you with open arms. Come back to him. And he says, and the, the prophets would come with the message that one day there's going to come a Messiah, the anointed promised one, who's going to set all things right. But the nation of Israel spurned the prophets and went their own way, led to the captivity. And God in his grace brought back the exiles from Babylon uh, to Israel after 70 years of captivity. And then soon after that, there was 400 years of silence. And then after that silence, God speaks again. But he speaks through the word made flesh, the promised Messiah, Jesus the Christ, comes. As we saw, when Jesus comes, he, uh, he is received with initial acceptance because he comes as a suffering servant and as the anointed king. And people are excited initially, but then what do they do? The crowds once again reject God. That just as we reject, mankind rejected God at creation, then Israel rejected God with the, wanting their own kings, and then God shows up in the flesh, and mankind once again rejects God. But this time, this rejection is the worst kind of rejection. Not only do they reject God the Son, Jesus, but they also have him killed. And what would seem to be the lowest point of the entire story, though, turns out to be the best the best part of the whole story. Because on the cross, God, Jesus, God the Son, he, he doesn't die and stay dead. No, he's not the one that's defeated on the cross. Sin is. And when Jesus rises again on the third day, he defeats sin. See, at the lowest point of rejection, when, when mankind rejects God by having God killed, what God is communicating to us is that he desperately loves us. As Romans 5 says so profoundly, for God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And after being buried, he rises again. 
And then the Bible talks about his resurrection as being the, the first fruits of the resurrection. It's the very beginning of this new thing that God is doing where everyone who puts faith in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sins can become new. That the old is gone and that the new has come and then eventually through Christ's resurrection, even all the whole, all heavens and all earth will be renewed and restored. And then Christ, after his resurrection, spends about 40 days with his closest followers. And during that time, he tells them that he's about to ascend to the Father. And so here's this mission I'm giving you to go take the news about what I have done for for the world. Take it to the world that everyone would have a chance to be saved. And then he initiates, through his death and resurrection, the birth of the church. And the church is a people called out by God to be God's, Jesus, his tangible body here on earth to demonstrate and declare the love of God to the world. And Z did a great job last week when he walked through Acts 1 through 7 to kind of talk about the, the nature and the birth of the church. And today, what we're going to cover is Acts 8 all the way through to Jude, which is the last, second to last book of the New Testament, uh, the epistles, and uh, up till Revelation, to see, uh, zero in on the mission of the church, all right? And so here's where we're going to go, having given that preview of where we've been. We're going to look at the uh, mission of the church, the spread of the church, and the encouragement to the church, okay? So let me uh, pray, and then we will dive into that. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that we can know you because you've made yourself known. And God, thank you that we can have a relationship with you. Even though we as, uh, as uh, humanity have rejected you again and again, even killing you on the cross. And yet, when we communicated our clearest rejection of you, you were, you were clearly communicating your greatest love for us. And God, you are amazing. And Lord, I pray that as we look at the mission of the church today, that we would be moved to join you in what you're doing, compelled by your love for us and the world to join you in communicating and demonstrating your love to this world. And that we wouldn't be feel like our arms are twisted or we're feeling guilted into uh, joining you in the mission, but Lord, we feel invited and compelled by you. God, you are amazing. And we love you and we thank you for this time to study your word together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, so let's begin with this, uh, the mission of the church. And uh, to understand really the why behind uh, the what of this portion of Scripture, it's helpful for us to go back to the Gospels and see some key statements that Jesus made right after his resurrection and before his ascension when he said like these like parting words, kind of these last like significant statements before he leaves to go to uh, be at the right hand of the Father again. And these statements really set the course and the trajectory of everything we're going to look at in, the sec- in this portion of Scripture we're studying today. And so let's just Look at these real quick. Um, the most famous of these is called the Great, is known as the Great Commission. It's found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, Jesus comes to his followers and uh, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A couple of things real quick to point out from this. And Jesus says, this is your mission. Like, go make disciples of all nations. Notice all nations. And the promise at the end of it is, I'm not making, sending you out to go do this alone. This is something that I'm doing. Like, I'm going to be with you always to the end of the age. So this isn't leave me and do this. This is let's go together to make disciples of all nations. Then in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, the very end of the book of Mark, Jesus makes this statement. He says, and he said to them, go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole, to whole creation. Or in Luke chapter 24, at the very end of the book of Luke, verses 46 and 47, Jesus is speaking. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to, where? All nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Or in John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, the second to last chapter in the book of John, Jesus says this. After the resurrection, he's appearing to the disciples, and he says, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Because as he sends them, he also, the God, the Spirit, God continues to go with us into the mission that he's sending us on. And then the last one I'll hit on here is Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8, right before Jesus ascends, he says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the, what? Ends of the earth. See a theme here? <laughs> like, it's, it's pretty clear. Like Jesus is saying, hey, I'm sending you to go take the gospel to all nations, to the whole creation, to the ends of the earth, and I'm going to be with you as you do it. Here's your mission. Go. Now, like, why would he give them this mission? Why is this so important? And it's worth noting, guys, that this mission, like this, this uh, portion of the Bible leads us into the time period that we are currently in, right? And so, like, this, Jesus is saying, here's your mission between when my first coming and my second coming. We'll talk about that next week. But that time period is the time period of the first century church, and it's the time period of the 21st century church where we are today. And so all of this has to do with what he said to his initial audience and to us as well. And why would he make this such a big deal? Why would he repeat again and again, Go, I'm sending you to the nations. Why is that a big deal? Well, it's because it's a big deal because of what Jesus has done. Like God has come into the world and he has taken our place. The death that we deserve to die for our sins, he died for us. So that the life that we don't deserve to get, a life with God, we can get because of what Christ has done for us. That through Jesus' death and resurrection, our sins are forgiven and we can be, through faith in him, adopted into a relationship with God. It's absolutely amazing what Jesus has done. And so he's looking at his followers and he says, hey, you know what I just did? Like, I paid for the sins of the world. But the world doesn't know it yet. <laughs> Because he did this in Jerusalem in a time of no social media or news outlets or anything. So, like it's just a blip on the radar screen that no one else in Greece or in Ethiopia or any other part of the world has any idea that this has taken place. And so he says, here's your mission. You've got to tell people. Paul sums it up like this in Romans chapter 10. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So guys, understanding the commissioning helps us understand what, uh, why we see what we see in, in the rest of the New Testament, starting in the book of Acts. For what we see from this point out in the book, uh, in the Bible, is uh, the people of God, the church of God, taking the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So, that's the mission of the church. So let's talk about what happened through that and the spread of the church. So like last week we left off with the church growing in Jerusalem. And as people responded to the gospel in droves, and like some, some uh, historians believe that as many as 20 to 25% of the city of Jerusalem had placed their faith in Christ and had joined the church. Like this amazing uh, movement of the Spirit of God is happening in Jerusalem. But... As you can imagine, not everyone in Jerusalem was happy about that. Namely, the religious leaders who just like a month or two months ago had, had like killed Jesus. And now there's like this huge spread of the church, everyone claiming that Jesus is God and that he rose again and he's the Messiah. And so the religious leaders start leading a time of persecution. And in Acts chapter 7, you see the first Christian martyr, a guy named Stephen. He's stoned to death. And in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1, we read these words right after Stephen dies. It says, And Saul, who I'll come back to in just a minute, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, preaching the gospel. So, like, this great persecution happens, which is terrible, and yet at the same time, God uses it to scatter all these Christians to do what he commissioned them to do, to take the gospel from, Jeru from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And so what you see in Acts chapter 8, right after this, this what I just read is said, is that you got a guy named Philip who's a believer, and he, he goes to the Samaritans, and he starts preaching the gospel, and tons of them come to Christ. In fact, it makes this great statement where there's this great rejoicing in the city as they hear what God has done through Jesus that they could have salvation from their sins and enter into a relation with God. And so tons of people come to know, uh, come to know Jesus in, in Samaria. And then Philip moves on and he runs across a guy that's an a Ethiopian. And he has this conversation with this Ethiopian and he ends up sharing the gospel out of the book of Isaiah. And this guy comes to know Christ. And then we know from history that the Ethiopian travels back to Ethiopia because there's this great work of the church in the very beginning, first century A.D., where the church spreads in Ethiopia. And so you start seeing the gospel move out and the church begin to be birthed in different areas of the world. Then in Acts chapter 9... Something else really remarkable happens. That guy, Saul, who was the lead persecutor of the church, the most zealous in trying to stamp out the church, uh, he's confronted by Jesus. In Acts 9, verse 3, it says, Now as he, Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. 
falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, talk about an awkward moment, right? Like, that's a scary conversation. Because if you're Paul, like, you're, this, you're a Pharisee, you're this religious leader who's highly committed to God. And he thinks that he is honoring God by stamping out what in Paul or Saul's view is this like rogue heretical sect of, of Judaism who has claimed that the Messiah has come and that Jesus was him. And so he's trying to stamp them out. He's overseeing their killing and all of their arrests. He's headed to a place called, at, at this moment, he's headed to a place called Damascus in order to go arrest as many Christians as he can find there. And yet here, Jesus appears to him. And then Jesus, his blindingly glorifying light, says to Saul, hey, why are you persecuting not my people, not Christians, but Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is blinded by this interaction. Jesus says, hey, go to to Damascus and wait. Saul goes to Damascus. He doesn't eat or drink anything for three days. He's just praying. And then, uh, meanwhile, Jesus goes to a guy named Ananias in a vision and tells Ananias, I want you to go to Saul, and I want you to pray over him. And, and as you can imagine, Ananias, who knows who Saul is, is like, whoa, what would you, I know you're Jesus, but, you know, I think you might have got your people mixed up because Saul's the guy who's killing us and trying to arrest us. And Jesus says this in Acts 9, uh, verse 15, it says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so Ananias goes and he obeys God and he lays hands on Saul and Saul is healed. He receives his sight back and he receives the Holy Spirit as he's born again through faith in Jesus. And Saul, who later starts going by the name Paul, ring a bell, the apostle Paul, that's this guy. Starts going by the name Paul, begins preaching the gospel, and with all of the zeal with which he was trying to stamp out the church, he now uses that same, with that same passion, but motivated completely at a different place. By the love of God, he goes spreading the gospel. And from this point forward, when, uh, in the rest of Acts, Acts primarily zeroes in on the, on the life and the ministry and really the missionary efforts of the Apostle Paul. And guys, when you think about the Bible, when you go to the New Testament, you've got the gospel accounts, the four gospels, that talk about the life of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And then you have the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is really the historical book of the, of the early church, the first century, what God was doing. And so it, it traces all of this stuff, and then from this point on in Acts, it really begins to focus in on what God does through this guy, Saul, Paul, and God using him to declare the gospel to the nations. And so the book of Acts tells us about that primarily by tracing Paul's three missionary journeys. So let me uh, highlight a few things from there uh, somewhat quickly. (laughs) So like in Acts chapter 13 and 14, that records Paul's first missionary journey, which is a two-year trip that he takes with a couple different guys, Barnabas and John Mark, and to the re- primarily to the region of Galatia. So I think there's a map up there. You kind of see his path. Um, and the and Acts lays out clearly that Paul and his, his crew, they had like a methodology 
of how they would enter into these cities, what they would do is that they would show up in a city and they would go first to the synagogue, where the synagogue is where the Jews in that region or in that city would worship God on the Sabbath. So they would start off there in the Sabbath and they would proclaim to the Jews, the Messiah has come, and it's Jesus the Christ. And here's what he's done. He, he, he's been killed and rose again for your sins. And what would happen is that you would usually have some who would believe the message. But then most of the Jews would reject the message, and then Paul would turn to the Gentiles, anyone who is not a Jew in the city in that region, and declare the gospel to them. And you would see that many of them would believe the gospel message. So, for example, uh, in, the, in the city of Antioch of Pisidia, uh, there, uh, Paul in Acts 13, 44-49, you, you told this story where Paul shows up and he goes to the synagogue first and he preaches about how Christ is the Messiah and people are really intrigued and so they invite him to come back to the, the next Sabbath to keep preaching about this and that's where I'll pick up verse 44. It says, and the next Sabbath almost the whole city, like hear that? Almost the whole city, wild, uh, gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when, hear this, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Like, you hear this? Like, these, like put yourself in their shoes. Like, they are hearing the gospel for the very first time. Like, no one, no one has gone to Antioch of Pisidia and shared the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And Paul's going there, and he's sharing this. And people, as it says, they respond with this incredible rejoicing. Like, there's a God that created us, and that even though we've rejected, he came after us, and he died for us so that we could have life in him through his death and resurrection, and I just need to believe that, and I know for sure that I am forgiven and could be with God forever. Are you kidding me? And, like, there's just much rejoicing. Like, people are coming to faith in droves all over the place. Like, it's just awesome. So then... They travel, so then his first missionary journey, he's going off all these places, and then once he gets to Derby, he turns around and he backtracks to all these cities that he had been hitting on his way back to Antioch of Syria, a different Antioch, where his home church is. And here's what it says in Acts 14, 21. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, uh, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. So they're revisiting the churches where people come to Christ. I mean, the cities where people come to Christ. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And guys, this is a statement of how they were establishing, establishing churches. So they would preach the gospel 
people would come to Christ. They would, they would start meeting together. And Paul comes back around, and he sees, like, okay, let's establish elders in these churches and so, and so that everyone's going to be cared for and that they're going to hold true through the, to the truth, the gospel, and to doctrine and have that teach. And they're setting up these churches in all of these cities. And then he returns back to his home church and Antioch, and he tells them of everything that God has done, and that church just is going crazy. Like, this is amazing. The gospel is going to all the nations. This is so incredible. And after a little while, Paul sets out on his second missionary journey. And so his second missionary journey is found in Acts uh, 16 to 18. And this one's going to last for three years, and he's going to go much further, as you can see. And on this trip, he brings with him uh, like Silas. He picks up uh, Timothy, which is his most famous disciple. Uh, and he picks up a few other guys, including Luke, who's the author of Acts. And so let me uh, just tell you, like, there's so much of this I'd love to just, I could talk about this all day. But let me just give you a highlight of one of my favorite uh, uh, stories that takes place on this missionary journey. It's found in Acts chapter 17, uh, 1 through 7. It says this, they, they came to Thessalonica, which is, if you can tell, it's like way up in Macedonia. So go to the, if you see the map, is that map in there clear? There is one in there somewhere. There you go. Uh, yeah, so way up in the upper right-hand corner. And he's traveling a long way. So he's in Thessalonica, and it says, uh, they were uh, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, as I explained a second ago, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd because Paul and Silas were staying at Jason's house. And uh, that was nice of you, Jason. And uh, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting. And like, this is, this is such an awesome line. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, can you, you, you feel the weight of that statement? Like these men who have turned the world upside down. Like look how far, like you look at that map, look how far they are from Jerusalem. Look how far the gospel has spread in a short period of time that where the people in Macedonia and Thessalonica would say, look, these men who have turned the entire world upside down, preaching that there's this God who loves us, who we rejected and sinned against, but he loves and sent his son to die for us. Like this message of Jesus being the Messiah, it's turning the world upside down. And now they're here in our city. And God is moving in an amazing way because he wants everyone to know that he loves them. That God sent his only son and then he sent his followers to people so that they would know what he has done for them. And it's happening. The world is being turned upside down. People are coming to Christ in droves. It's like, I love this. After a short time, Paul then sets off and um, 
leaving Thessalonica. He goes to Berea and then Athens, and that's an awesome story. Read that, Acts 17. He goes to Corinth, preaching the gospel boldly, and then eventually he then again returns to his home church in Antioch of Syria. And then after a short time, he sets off on his third missionary journey, which is recorded in the end of Acts and uh, or, or the end of Acts 18 through 21, all right? So 18 through 21. And this is really, on this trip, is his, is his time primarily in Asia Minor. Uh, it's a four-year trip, but he spends three of those years in the same city, the city of Ephesus. And what God does in the city of Ephesus is absolutely awesome. And I would love to tell you all those stories. I just don't have time for it. But read that this week. Read it in Acts chapter 19. It's, it's fantastic. But... um. For sake of time, let me just jump to the end of this missionary journey. So it ends with Paul going to Jerusalem. And he says that when going to Jerusalem, he knew that when he goes there, he's going to be arrested. Because the religious leaders in Jerusalem know that God's been using Paul to turn the world upside down, preach Jesus as Messiah. And so they are not fans of his. And sure enough, when he gets to Jerusalem, they do have him arrested. And Paul appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And so they have to take Paul all the way to Rome. And the rest of Acts from chapter 22 to 28 is basically the story of Paul's imprisonment and travels to Rome and his time, uh, some of his time uh, under house arrest in Rome where he's in house arrest for two years. All the while that he travels to Rome, he's continuing to preach the gospel and more and more would be saved and they would the church would be rooted and spread out from there. Um, during his time of house arrest, that's where uh, Paul wrote the bulk of his letters, and so uh, which are known as the epistles. And um, he was writes primarily uh, to the churches that he helped establish or to indiv individuals, encouraging them in their faith. And so let me move on this morning to our next topic, which is like the encouragement to the church and kind of covered what the, the epistles and the, and the story of the Bible. Actually, let me, right before I get to that, though, let me just say it's worth noting that though Acts primarily follows uh, God spreading the good news of the gospel and establishing churches through the work of Paul and his crew, Paul and his crew were not the only people that were spreading the gospel and establishing churches. As I mentioned earlier, you got the, the Ethiopian who Philip leads to Christ, and then he goes to Ethiopia. But you have, like, the other disciples. They're also sharing the gospel and, and uh, on mission, making sure that the gospel continues to move forward and establishing churches. That's why you have Peter who writes his letters to the churches in Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. Why? Because he had a relationship with them, because he helped establish churches there. In fact, this, I've got a slide up here that just shows like the, the historical tradition of where the Jesus' 12 disciples went during, uh, uh, after Jesus' ascension. Um, you got that, Claire? Well, if you can find it, you'll see it. And you see that they, they go all over the place. The Acts zeroes in on Paul, but it's not just Paul doing this. Why? Because Jesus gave the commission... Sorry, yes, I know it's like poor quality, but you get the idea. But, the, uh, you, but they all are doing this because Jesus had given them the commission to all of his followers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. This was our responsibility. And so you see that happening, and the gospel is moving out in powerful ways. You know, it's just, Paul is just an example 
of that for us. So the, let me just, I'm going to have to go super fast. I'm running, running uh, long on time. No surprise. But um, the, uh, the epistles, the letters are letters that are written by the uh, apostles, by Paul wrote many of them, and then like John writes some, Peter writes some, uh, Jude, half-brother of Jesus, writes one. And so they are writing to encourage churches and individuals to be established in the faith and encouraged to live out the faith. Now I've got a, a chart up here that shows you kind of uh, the, the breakdown of the epistles, who wrote them. Um, so you see that Paul wrote a, a lot of them, <laughs> and so he writes to to the church in Rome, to Romans, he writes to the churches, the church in Corinth, First and Second Corinthians, and you know you just kind of follow along. He also writes to individuals. So Timothy is primary disciple. He writes two letters to to Timothy, charging him to take the torch and continue passing on the faith to preach the word. He writes to Titus. He writes to Philemon, and then you've got others uh, who write uh, Hebrews. We don't, well, actually don't know who the author of Hebrews was. Uh, you have James. Uh, who, wrote, who wrote, of course, writes the book of James as also a half-brother of Jesus. Anyways, you get an idea. That's the breakdown of the epistles. Now, what's interesting to note about the epistles when you're studying them is that um, they're all similarly structured. You might have noticed this before if you were reading like Philippians or Ephesians or something, but what you see in them is that they're usually very heavy on doctrine up front and then they, at some point in time, there comes a point where it says, like, therefore, in light of all that God has done for us in Jesus, let us, boom, 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 and he moves real practical in nature. So the front part is doctrine. The second half usually is more practical in nature. And it's just worth knowing yourself and being aware of this that most people have a bent towards, like, really being either excited about doctrine or excited about the practicals. And what we see in the epistles is that they're both important. And what's helpful to understand is that though they're both important, the doctrine comes first because our actions in Christianity come out of not what we do to get something from God, but what God has already done for us, and then therefore who he has made us into, and therefore here's what we do as a result. So it's, it's, it, that's powerful. We could, I could talk a lot about that. But uh, that's helpful as well. If you understand, and that kind of makes sense of how the Gospels are laid out. Here's who God is. Here's what he's done. Here's who he's made you into as a result of his work. Therefore, live this out. Okay? And when it comes to mission, even what we're talking about right now, gosh, it's so helpful for you to understand that. So let me go to a, a passage real quick before we wrap up. And that is 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Uh, through uh, chapter 6, verse 1, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And I just want to see how this plays out with both the doctrine and then the practice. So it says in verse 14, For Christ's love compels us, because we were convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Therefore, going to verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. And then we just pause there, guys. See, that's doctrine. Look at who God is. 
Look at what he's done. This is amazing. This is how you've been loved. Let this love, the way that God's loved you, compel you. Compel us to do what? And then he gets into the the practicals. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Like we have a new identity. This is because of who God is, what he's done. Now he's made us into new people. Remember, the old is gone, the new has come. A part of the new identity is that we are ambassadors. We are citizens of his kingdom living in foreign, foreign fields. Meant to display what he is like, to give people a glimpse of his coming kingdom and to proclaim to them the message of reconciliation, which is what he come to, continues to say. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So working together with him. Lo, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Go, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you, I'm bringing the Holy Spirit on you. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, and then you're going to be my witnesses. So working with him, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Guys, when it comes to the mission of the church, get this. The mission of the church is our mission. But guys, this is an invitation And this is a privilege. This is not meant to twist your arm and make you feel bad. This is something that we look at and we say, in light of the doctor, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of God's great love for us, poured out for us in Jesus, we are compelled by his love to live out who he's made us into, his ambassadors, that we would demonstrate like then how we live, how we engage social issues, racial issues, how we engage the fear in our culture, how we engage money and materialism and marriage and the way we raise our kids and the way that we treat the poor and the way that we treat our neighbors and how we demonstrate God's love and how we declare it so that the world would know that Jesus has come. And he has. And they need to know it. And what right now in our culture today often feels like, yeah, everybody knows about Christianity. But if you ask them what they believe about Christianity, it usually boils down to, I have to do good things. Because that's not the gospel. And our city and our neighbors and your classmates and your coworkers, they need to hear, no, you don't have to do good things. Because even if you did, they would not be good enough, but God loves you so much that he died for you. God loves you. They need to hear it. And Jesus has commissioned us to bring it to them. And guys, it's a privilege that we get to join with him in that. We don't go apart from him. We don't go just for him. We go with him to share what he's done that people could come to know him and experience eternal life forever. May the love of Christ compel us. This is an awesome, awesome thing that we get to join with God in. Guys, that's our mission. So we say at Midtown Church, along with other churches in our city, like here's our dream. We want to see the day when every man, woman, and child in Austin and beyond hears the gospel from someone who loves them. And let me just say, 
Let's do that. Let's do that. Because God's worthy and because our neighbors are loved by him. And they need to know just how much. And guys, we're going to end by taking communion as a way for us to remember that this is how much God loves us. That even right now, you can take a minute and perhaps you're feeling like, yeah, yeah, I know I'm supposed to share the gospel, but I just, man, I just, uh, I'm so scared. Or I always just feel so guilty when I leave a message like this. And I know I'm so bad. And I, and I just pause and fight that. And as you hold the bread and you hold the cup, I want you to say to yourself, God loves me. He loves me. And he loves me regardless of whether I follow his commission. Because he loved me enough to die for me before I even cared to. He loves you. But then allow his love to compel you. To move you to want to join him in getting this good news to your friends and your family and your co-workers and your classmates. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you. So we take the communion. May you remember that. And then may he move us to join him in what he's doing. That got the gospel to us. May we get it to others. Father God. Mm. Your love, God, it's, it really is It's amazing. God, we do not deserve it. God, we, we rejected you and reject you. And yet you continue to pursue us at the expense of your son, Jesus, your life. As we remember that, as we take communion, how Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was spilled for us, God, grip us with this. And then, Lord, give us your heart for people. That when we go home and we pass by our neighbors, we walk by our apartment neighbors' doors, Lord, remind us of, of, that you've sent us out and that our neighbors need to know how much you love them. God, may every man, woman, child in this city and beyond hear the gospel from someone who loves them. Would you make it so? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.